Good morning. Let me say happy birthday to my mother-in-law. What? What did I say? Why did everybody? Oh, you already did it? Well, yeah, but you're not her son-in-law. I have to say it. Happy birthday. I gave her the best gift ever. Ever. It's true. It's true. Why are you laughing? You shouldn't be laughing. I see you laughing, Pam. It's not, it's, it's, this is serious. I moved my entire family into our house. And now we live there rent-free. What a gift for you, Nana. I had your best interest at heart. This morning as Fang was attacking the cat, that was all for you. <laughs> oh boy, it's already been so much fun. <laughs> we are now, uh, Nana has a, you know, a veritable palace at her house. And so we were able to move our family in there for some time. I want to say thank you to all the guys who helped me move yesterday. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, our conversations range from football to what would be the most ridiculous thing we would buy if we won the $1.6 billion Powerball, whatever it's called, Moneyball. What is it called? Mega Money. Look at how many of you were like, Mega Millions. <laughs> hey, listen, listen. I'm not going to say anything if I see you in the gas station buying one, okay? Just remember, if you win the lottery, you have to give 11%. <laughs> okay. Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist asks a very serious question. That every one of us must ask and must answer. And that question is this, if you, Lord, you see the all caps, whenever you see the all caps of the Lord in your Bible, they are speaking of God's covenant name, Jehovah. It's a very serious thing. They are speaking out of God's relationship with his people. It asks, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who of us could stand? Let's pray. Father, we are confronted with two amazing realities. One, that we are totally sinful. Our mind, our soul, even our physical bodies, our hearts are corrupted by sin. And your word tells us that you are holier than can look upon sin. That you are almighty and just and that you are the one who punishes sin. But on the other side, Lord, we see the God of all mercy... And so, Lord, we ask this morning, what must we do to be saved from your just wrath? What you hold against us in our sins is totally and completely justified. 
No flesh will glory in your presence. Your word says that the best of our righteousness is unto you, filthy rags. That you are holy and that you dwell in unapproachable light. Whenever sinful man was in your presence, immediate, immediate blindness, repentance, proclamation for mercy and forgiveness. Because you are so holy. And yet, Lord, on this other side, you are so merciful at the same time. You must be just, but you do not have to be merciful. And so, Lord, in the one single person, true God of God, true man of man, Jesus Christ is where we see both your justice perfectly meted out on mankind and your mercy freely given to all who believe. And so this morning, today, we praise the name of Jesus. He is the name above all names. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved because he was the one who brought together justice and mercy on the cross. He is the one who paid our sins. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you lived the perfect life we couldn't live and that you paid the infinite sacrifice that we now don't have to pay by faith in you. You are almighty and awesome God, and you are so loving and merciful Father. And we love you, and in your presence we stand today to worship you. Lord, thank you for your justification. Amen. This morning we are going to continue on in our series. I'm going to do a couple services on this topic of justification by faith alone. But we are continuing on the topic of salvation. There is a big word, and that word is soteriology. And all it is is the fusing of two Greek words. The first one is soterios, and the second one is ology. You have biology, you have psychology. Biology is a study of life. Psychology is a study of the mind. You have cardiology, it's a study of the heart. Soteriology is a study of salvation. Soterios simply means salvation. And we are going to explain how we are saved. Too many Christians walk this earth not knowing how God has saved them. It makes you wonder if they have ever come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because our churches have neglected to tell you the truth. Our churches have neglected to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. This is a big, big book. If someone came and asked the most pressing question that all of us must ask, because I don't think, I don't think we grasp how often, or, or at least that our entire life is lived on a razor's edge, that at any moment we could lose our lives, then what? What is it that comes next? Are we ready To meet God. But if we're going to answer this question, we need to be able to answer it quickly. And that question is, what must I do to be saved? Because we need salvation today. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. 
The next moment of your life is not guaranteed to you. And this question is so important. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, there was an earthquake, divine earthquake, that set the men free. And when the earth quaked and they were in jail and the prison broke down and the bars came free, the Philippian jailer took out a sword to end his life. In those days, and in those days they didn't have lawyers who could come in and argue why they shouldn't be held accountable for losing prisoners. They didn't just lose their job. If a prison guard lost prisoners, they lost their life. And this Philippian jailer decided that he would end his life and forfeit his life for those prisoners right then and there. But Paul yelled out, stop. Do not kill yourself. We are all still here. And the next question that the man asked was, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Life was cheap in those days. Men and women did not live long, long lives like they do today. And so you had to be ready to meet Almighty God in a moment's notice. And today, you have to be ready to meet God. The question that you and I and all of us need to answer is, what must we do to be saved? Last week, we talked about what God does on our behalf, that he effectually draws us in. That the heart that we have and the love for God that we have and the coming to him is by God's drawing us. It is God calling us to him. It is his work so that all of us who praise the name of Jesus do so by the hand of God. And that we might praise him for his work of salvation in our hearts. But how is it that a just God can take sinners who are so utterly guilty of their sins and forgive us? The late R.C. Sproul, that's hard to say. The late R.C. Sproul said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone deals with what may be the deepest existential problem a human being can ever face. How can a sinner that is an unjust person ever withstand the judgment of a holy and just God? Now, all of you are sinners. Some of you might say, I'm a good person, but the Bible says differently. And in the courtroom, the only thing that matters is what the judge thinks about you. I had a police officer say one time, he said to me, I said, is it illegal to do this? He says, well, it all depends. He says, the only thing that matters is what the judge says when you stand before him. Amen. If you think the excuse that you are a good person is a fair testimony before God Almighty, be my guest, go right ahead. But the Bible warns you today, it will not last for even your best deeds, the best thing you've ever done in life, God sees as filthy rags. This is an all-important question. The doctrine of justification 
is specifically concerned with our legal standing before God. We're talking about justice. Today, that's a big word. That's a very important word. We want justice. What is justice? Justice is, you, you see this from time to time, we see uh, a scales, a weighing scale. And the idea of justice is to have those scales even, not like this. It is to say that they are even, or to have, in our case, what we hope is good above the bad. I had some friends where I used to work who really believed that their little good deeds that they were doing were actually weighing down the justice scales so that God would see they've done just more good in their life than bad. But unfortunately, every single thing you've ever done, every single thought you've ever had, apart from those that are now done by faith in Christ alone, all of your deeds are placed on the side of your guilt. The best deeds, that's what the Bible says. All human beings here, every single human being here, every man, woman, and child is either justified or unjustified in God's courtroom. And you know what happens when someone is unjustified in God's courtroom? They are guilty, and upon that guilt, there are now consequences. The Bible, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And it is not simply our physical death here and now, but it is our eternal, conscious, and aware of our suffering death. The wages of our sin. It's just what has earned us our, our, our damnation. One great Christian leader said once that God's justice on that day will be so perfect that even the damned will believe and agree in their damnation. God says that our sins require an eternal punishment. You say, but, but I haven't done anything really, really bad. But God says it doesn't matter. Because as David said, I was conceived in sin. And as we've already learned, sin is not simply bad. It's not the bad we do. It is the disobedience to Almighty God's command. So how is it that human beings who have weighed down the scale with every single deed, even the best of their deeds, on the side of guilt... How is it if God is holier than can even look upon sin? As, some, as when Moses asked God, he said, God, I want to see your glory. And God's response to, Abraham, or, uh, to Moses was, you cannot look upon my glory. For man cannot look upon God and live. God is that holy. We are that sinful. How is it possible that that holy God, see that's true, two truths that we're dealing with. This holy God who is high and lifted up, who, is in, in, who dwells in inapproachable light. 
can have reconciliation, forgiveness with those whose sins are weighed so heavily. Because Scripture says, and it is the story of all of Scripture, really beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, this single truth that is stated in Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. This morning, I want to look at the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, specifically Article 11-1. I want to elaborate on why the Reformers and why we as a church believe that God is both just and the justifier of all sins. So let's look at this really briefly. The article of faith. Now, just let me say something really quickly. Because of the scope and size of the Bible, and by the way, all of us should know the word of God. It should be something that we dwell in. And we should not simply live our lives on our own pet theological beliefs. It's a real temptation. And it's not to say that those confessions or those theological beliefs are unimportant. It is to say that the entire word of God is what we should live by. It was Jesus who said, man does not live by bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of the Father, that comes from God. And so we are responsible for knowing the word of God. But we must also take this complex book and give it some summation. That is to give summary points on these important truths. What must I do to be saved in a moment's notice cannot begin with Genesis 1-1 and end on Revelation 22. We need to have a ready available answer. And so the reformers during the, 16th, uh, during the 15th and 16th century were adamant to explain this one truth. Justification is by faith alone. That is, we are right with God by our faith alone. Not by our work. And so this article was written. It says that those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Last week we talked about effectual calling. That is that God has called us into his presence. But what this, what this article is stating is simply a truth that we should all live by. It is this, there are no free lunches. Do you know where that saying comes from? During the early industrial period of the turn of the century, 20th century, saloons used to put outside free lunch. And the workers who would see that, who were trying to scrimp and save everything, every dime and every dollar they had, would go into the saloon and get a free lunch. And it was usually a block, some kind of block of incredibly salty meat. And they would sit down and they would eat the meat. And then they'd go, man, I'm, I'm thirsty. What do you got? 
Oh, well, we got some beer. Well, we've got some, something to drink. Come and have this drink. And the drinks were spiked high so that they had to pay for the drinks, but they didn't have to pay for their food, hence the name No Free Lunch. Because ultimately they were paying for it. They had them. They knew that if they gave them a salty block of meat, that they were going to buy drinks. But furthermore, someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. A concept Americans can't grasp. Oh, give me all these services. Yeah, but someone has to pay for those. Guess who? Guess who? You and me. Someone has to pay. So yes, God has effectually drawn us in and called us in, but this costs something. It costs something. And what is free from our perspective is not free from God's. Because it cost God in the person of Jesus Christ his life. And the worst thing it cost him was the torment of separation from God at the moment of his death. That is why his death is the greatest and most ignominious death of all history. He, that is God, does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone, and not for anything produced in them, that is, those who are justified or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, that is the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, God imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. Notice that word there, T-H-E-I-R, is referring to persons. This faith is not self-generated. But it is the gift of God. Let's look at this part by part. The first part that we're going to look at is the first statement. It says, those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Romans 3.24 says this. We are now justified by God's grace, his grace, as a gift that came through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We are now forgiven by what Christ has done. He freely justifies us, but it cost Jesus his life. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom God has predestined and those whom he has called, he has also justified. He has declared that you are forgiven, that you are pardoned of your sins. And to those whom he has justified, he is also glorified. Can a true believer lose their salvation? The answer is no. Because those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. In the courtroom, in the cosmic courtroom of God, God has declared once and for all, you are forgiven. 
if you are under the blood. Someone has once illustrated it this way, that not only does the judge forgive us, but he takes off his robe and gets on a cross. The judge both declares he is both just and the justifier. He is the priest and the sacrifice. Wow. So you're forgiven. Those whom God effectually calls, he freely justifies. The next part says, he does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. Now this was a key point to the reformers, the word infusing. They are denying a medieval belief that grace, God's forgiveness, was a substance. You see this from time to time. In movies, and you'll see it in Hollywood. Uh, if you watch movies like End of Days, and uh, you see how do you kill the devil? Well, you got to get a super soaker, and then you got to go down to the Catholic Church, and you got to pour water in that super soaker, which is a water gun, and you got to pump it up. And if you shoot the devil with holy water, he'll burn. Vampires, right? We're in the season of Halloween. One of the ways that you kill the undead is that you have to put holy water on them, and they'll just burn. Because they thought that the grace of God was like a substance. It was actually based on a misinterpretation by the Latin Vulgate that Erasmus and Valla both confirmed later on was a mistranslation. Assuming from Luke chapter 1 when the angel told her that she was highly favored. That she was the reservoir of grace. That she had within her some kind of supernatural substance. But instead, it just simply meant highly favored one, one whom God showed grace to, so that there is no infusing. But you know the Catholic Church still teaches this. It's why you have to come down front, and it's why I will not take the Eucharist at a Catholic Church because they are doing something that I do not believe. They are saying that the priest is giving you the body transubstantiated into the bread, that the bread's physical properties remain, but that supernaturally God's grace has been infused into that wafer and it is now in there and the priest who gives you this now infuses some grace, but not all. Before Martin Luther decided to write his 95 theses, he went around on a tour of Europe and he was going to every single, he had gone to St. Peter's Basilica and he was going to uh, one monastery after another. He was also going to uh, one uh, church after another. And what he would try and do was find some kind of religious relic to touch it so that he could get more grace. And what he thought he was doing was storing up by the power that was in these material possessions some kind of grace. He thought he was infusing it to him. That's what he thought. He talked about kissing the wings of the, kissing the feathers from the Holy Spirit. And the Catholic Church makes billions off of these things, and they build and buy countries off of these things. 
Watch what happens during the Christmas season. They'll start rolling out enough pieces of the cross to rebuild the Dolphin Stadium. And people will go and they'll kneel before it and they'll do the sign of the cross and they'll kiss it because they think they're getting grace. And that that really, really bad thing that they did, they're infusing more grace to them. When we go to Ireland, we climb a mountain. The name of the mountain is Crow Patrick. Crow is Gaelic for mountain. And we climb this mountain. It's a two and a half, uh, two and a half mile ascent to the top. But once you get to the last quarter of the mountain, it's very ra ragged and very rugged. It's also very cold. There are high winds. I got a terrible ear infection. And uh, we went up there, and there are all these rocks. It's just rocks, and they're sharp. There's nothing, no ground, but rock, just solid shards everywhere. And people who believe that grace is infused believe that if they will walk up that mountain of St. Patrick barefoot, bloody and broken bones... That God's grace will be infused to them. You see how important this doctrine is? Justification comes by faith alone. And so the reformers made a point to deny this idea that you could earn or you could go and get some substance and put it in your body and that would give you some grace. And the more and more stuff you collected, the more and more substance you had, the longer or more sure, uh, sureness you would have that you would be saved when God judges man for his sin. You could point to all the relics you kissed, all the holy water you drank, all the masses that you went to, all the rocks you climbed up barefooted, all the times you took the salise. Do you know what the salise is? It's a piece of metal that has hooks in it. And some monks who are part of the Opus Dei movement will take that salise and they will put it around their leg. And whenever they have impure thoughts, they will tighten that salise and it digs into the flesh. And it will tighten and they'll tighten it more and more in order to bleed and in order to earn God's favor. Some will do what is called self flagellation where they will take cat of nine tails and whip their back with every thought that they were having. It was Luther who was in one of these cathedrals on stone stairs climbing on his knees reading the scriptures when he came across the just shall live by faith. You cannot earn this. You are not a Christian until you get that. Do you understand what I said? It is that serious. You cannot be saved until you understand that salvation is by faith alone. Any addition of your works ruins it. Paul said, if you circumcise yourself, Galatians you might as well do the whole thing. He says, go ahead and castrate yourself in the passage. That's what he says. And he says, if you do this, Christ is of no value to you. So all of you here today who think you've earned a little bit more favor of God because you made it on time and you're here, you haven't. The only thing that earns forgiveness 
is the imputation of Christ's righteousness that comes by faith. Not by the infusing of some mysterious substance. Romans 4, 5 through 8 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's what we're going after here. We are asking God to just not count our debt. God, I can't pay it back. And if you want to be saved, you must first embrace this truth. You owe God a debt that you can't pay back. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is God's grace to us. What? In a wafer? In a relic? No. By the sacrifice of Christ. Now, let me make one real quick point because I I do think that this has very important contextual meaning to us. When it says, by the blood of Jesus, it does not mean the physical hemoglobin of Jesus. So if you have a bumper sticker on your car that says, the blood of Jesus, it's red and it's got white on the inside. Isn't it ironic, by the way, that every time on every single bumper that you see on that car, it's always damaged? It's always a raggedy car with that blood of Jesus. Boy, if that's what the blood of Jesus gets me, I don't want it. Broken down Toyota. It's always ironic to see that car on the side of the road. Like, I thought you had the blood of Jesus on that. You would expect that at least, if you're forgiven, your car would run. It's not talking about the blood, Catholics. When you drink the wine, it doesn't transition into the blood of Jesus. You know what it is? It's wine. That's it. That's all it's going to ever be. It's wine. Why? Because scripture says in him. In what? In an appeal to what he has done. Because faith means we appeal to what he has done. We believe, we live our life on this, that all we will have before God on the day of judgment, if we are to be righteous, is the work of Jesus Christ. The confession goes on, it says, he does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. God pardons our sin not by anything you've done. Listen to the word. The word is pardoned. We see this every four and eight years with our presidents. 
They come in and they are given a right and they may pardon criminals. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the criminals aren't guilty. It doesn't mean that. They're still guilty. It just means they're pardoned. On that day, we will be pardoned because of the work of Christ and the decision of the Father. You say, I don't like that law. Well, that's one thing, but I tell you what, I am going to love that law on the day of judgment. I want him to say your pardon, and I'm going to say, Woo! Thank you, God. Especially after that day that I had yesterday moving those big things. How many times did I smash my knuckles on the wall and want to say bad words? I didn't say bad words. I said, hallelujah. But in my heart, I was saying, oh, darn. There go the skin on my knuckles. Well, you will be proud to know that Yoni didn't cuss one time yesterday. I'm very proud of you, Yoni. And he got his knuckles raked over the doors multiple times. Not to mention my dog hates him. All right, so scripture says, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in, listen to that preposition, you're in Christ Jesus. You know how people survived the flood? Do you know? It wasn't because they could swim good. The flood was so overwhelming, the only way you're going to only way you're going to survive it is what? You've got to be in the boat. And if you're not in the boat, you're dead. We all saw what happened in Titanic. It was, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie by now. It was either DiCaprio or whatever that chick's name was on top of that boat. But it couldn't be both. And he just faded into the water and died. He had to be on the raft. And if you're not in Christ, the floods of God's wrath are upon you. You must be in Christ. In Him. Listen to the word. It's such an important word. Don't, in your daily Bible study, don't overlook this word. And because of Him, you are in Christ. Because of who? Because of the Father. It is because of the work of the Father that we are in Christ. Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Every part of your religious life is in Christ. The verse goes on. It says, so that it, as it is written, let the one who boasts do what? Boast in the Lord. You can come today and sing every hymn. And be so happy. And you don't have to be down. So many of you are down this morning when you're singing the hymn. So many of you are upset. I was thinking about some things and some, some things that I had been holding on in my heart. And gosh, I'm thinking about how rotten it is. And as we began to, to sing the song that, that Tara played, the words were just speaking to me. What was the song? What? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Because he is faithful when we are Great is thy faithfulness. So why can I put my hand up? Why? Is this a fake? Is this a show? No, because in my heart I know I'm boasting in him, not in me. Jesus, my righteousness. Great is your faithfulness. 
you won't leave me. We're the unfaithful bride. We're the one who plays the whore. And God is the faithful husband. And when he says, I do, he means it. It's why divorce is such a terrible representation to the world and why we as Christians must strive as hard as we can to not have it because we are saying to the world through our marriage, this is how God is married to us. That in the worst of times, he is still our husband. Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if, because of one man's trespass, that being Adam, death reigned through that one man. Some of us say, I don't like the fact that we are all accounted as sinners because of Adam. Well, if you don't like that, wait till I finish the rest of this verse. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You're either in Adam this morning or you're in Christ. There's no in-between. In fact, if you're in between those two, if you think you're in between those two, you know what Jesus says about you? He says you make him so sick he wants to throw you up. That's what he says to the church at Laodicea. You're neither hot nor cold. You straddle the fence. You're kind of a Christian. You're a Christian on Sunday morning, but you're torn between Saturday night and early Sunday morning. You want to straddle that fence. You want to be living with your boyfriend outside of marriage or living with your girlfriend and having sexual relations. You want to be doing illegal things Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday, you want to be a Christian. You want to straddle that fence. And Jesus says, oh, would you be one or the other? Stop giving Christian a bad name. Be one or the other. Either be on fire for the Lord or be the cold corpse rotting in sin, but dadgummit, stop calling yourself a Christian when you don't look and act like one. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we're all sinners in Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If you think it's unfair that Adam sinned and we are now all called guilty based upon what Adam has done, do you now think it is unfair based upon the work of Christ that you are now declared righteous? Listen, the solution to you being upset over being guilty in Adam is to be pardoned in Christ. So that you will worship and boast in him and not in yourself. It goes on, it says, he does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. This is to say that God is not going to say, all right, just give me that one little act. Give me faith. And if you give me faith, I'll consider that as a good work. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Even the faith comes from God. You say, where is that in the Bible? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. I speak my Father's words, but you do not know my Father because you are of your Father, the devil.
even the ability to say Jesus is Lord is a gift God has given you. Because you, says the Bible, are dead in trespasses and sin. You don't even have the ability to come to God on your own. Now, it looks like it from our perspective. But from God's, what he has revealed to us is that even in the faith we express, we must give it to God. You know what I do from time to time? I thank the Lord for letting me be born in Jim and Sandra Summer's home. Because I could have been born in any other home. But because they love Jesus, God called me from before the foundation of the world. He gave me those parents to teach me the word of God. He uses means to call me through their instruction. I stand here today before you, not because I had any good ideas, but because God chose me from before the foundation of the world. Scripture says he writes our names in the Lamb's book of life before the world is ever created. Praise him for your salvation. What God does instead of infusing is he imputes. Now let me define the word impute. It simply means that God recognizes you're in. Simply God says, yeah, that's enough. It is his declaration. There's no substance. It's a declaration. When the, when the, when the president pardons a criminal, he doesn't inject them with a substance. He simply says they're pardoned. So it is imputed to him. And no one, the jailer cannot say, oh, I'm not letting him out. No, the president has spoken. He is pardoned. Done. But he is really bad. He is pardoned. Done. But he's still bad. He is pardoned. Done. Imputation means it is simply God declaring that those who have faith in his son are recipients of Christ's work. Wow. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works you do now as a Christian were prepared beforehand by God that you should walk in them. What is your spiritual gift this morning? Are you a giver? Do you feel compelled to give more money and to serve God by giving and caring for those financially? If so, it's not you who did that, but it is God giving you that wealth to give to his church. It is God who gives, not you. I pray this prayer for all the time. God, make the right people in this church rich. I'm praying that the right person in this church wins the $1.6 billion this Tuesday. Some of you are going to be throwing deuces. If you won, you'd be like, I'm buying an island. 
But the right people would change this community with that. God has given to the church wealthy people. He's given to the church encouragers. David Haro. I always think of when I think of the word encourager, I think of David Haro. You know that man has never said one discouraging word to me in my life. Not one time. But that's God giving me David Haro as a gift. So I thank God for David Haro. Yeah, that's David Haro's personality, but it came from God. Mr. Hearn is another one of those encouragers. I just love it. They're, they're God's gift. You know, your preachers and teachers are God's gift to you. God has given all of his people who he has justified these works to be a blessing to his church. And then it finally says this. This faith is not self-generated, but it is the gift of God. Listen to what John says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those through... Excuse me, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. It is simply the gift of God. Well, let me simply say these as we leave this morning. What things does this doctrine of justification compel us to affirm and deny about our salvation? Let me give you several things that this compels us. We must now affirm these things and deny these things. First, we must deny that any single person, any of us, is made blameless and right in God's eyes by how good we are. Do not come and tell me today you don't need salvation because you're a good person. I'm not impressed. And the only person who cares about that is God. And he says, you're not. If salvation is in Christ alone, then it doesn't matter what you have done. We must deny that a person sins. Listen to this one. That a person sins no matter how big or how little. No matter if they were last night or this morning. No such distinction between mortal and venial. There aren't really big sins and really small ones. The smallest of the small are enough to send you to hell. Will ever deny your acceptance by God through faith in Christ alone. God has separated your sins, the worst of the worst, as far as the east is from the west. We must deny so you see some people, you've got a person next door to you who wears a turban and you have said in your mind that person cannot be saved. Or you've got a person next door to you who's living in a homosexual relationship and you've said that person cannot be saved. Or you've got a person across the street who's a drunkard and an alcoholic and you say, no, they're beyond salvation. But listen, the gospel is that God saves sinners and there is no sin that can keep you condemned. To those who have faith in Christ alone. We must also deny that a person has good works in and of themselves. We must deny that faith in anyone or anything is enough to save a person. People tell me this all the time. It's all about faith. And we eat that stuff up because we're not listening. Oh, did you hear Oprah? Oh, Oprah was so good on Tuesday. Why? Man, she was talking about you just got to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? 
you know, you can put your faith in that potted plant, but it doesn't answer prayers. Some of you have little idols, you have little graven images in your house somewhere and you pray to them or you have a picture of Jesus who looks like Kenny Loggins for some reason and you put your faith in that picture and you praise that picture and you make the sign of the cross but none of those things, none of those things are saving you. Only God's pardoning by faith in Christ alone. We must deny or we must affirm that faith in Christ alone is the only grounds of justification before God. How now shall we live? 1 Corinthians says this, 15 verses 1 through 2. Paul says this. Now listen. So, so listen today. You want to you know how to be saved today? I want to tell you. If you're saved today, I want you to leave here affirming this. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. What is the thing that will sustain your salvation? It is by believing the gospel which is preached in the word of God. Every day. Get up and affirm it. Moment by moment, when Satan, the accuser, begins to accuse you of your wickedness, you tell Satan, it is by grace, through faith in Christ alone that I'm saved. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says... I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Stand what? Today, you stand before God forgiven if, says Paul, if you hold fast. That word means there that you live by it. It is the fuel of your life. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Listen, I know you had a special moment when you were a child, or you had a special moment when you were an adult where you prayed a prayer, but that was the beginning of your Christian life. You don't take the gospel and put it in a package and put it at the top of your closet. We were pulling, you know, what I, you know what I found? We have all of these things stored up at the top of the closet. You know what I realized? Anything that you put up on top of the closet is something you don't care about. <laughs> Open it up. I mean, why do I need to keep this, you know, rock that I got from Ireland? Like, who cares? Like, throw it out. Who, who's going to know? This rock is from Ireland. Ooh, what's that worth? A rock? I don't know. I mean, why did I keep it? Tara does the same thing. But we do this. We say, I was saved back then. And we haven't thought of the gospel one time since. Or we think about it every so often. But Paul says, it's this message. It is the belief. It is the daily recognition of the message that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. That he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. It is simply the belief in this message day by day. 
that justifies us. And you know what? As scripture tells us, if God has given to you, if he has effectually drawn you by his Holy Spirit, you can never and will never throw that gospel out of your life. You will cling to it. Paul says, stand firm. In what? In the message. Do not, Christian, this is a thing you might be susceptible to. You might be susceptible to this morning to say, I've done some good things. I know I'm in. Fine. Let the good works be a testimony to the fact that God has saved you. But do not boast in them. Yes, as a Christian, you can do good works, but only as God has prepared those good works for you in advance to do. Christian, today, if you're not a believer, if you are a believer today, every one of us, stand firm in what? In the message that Christ Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Live on that every moment of every day till you enter the grave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message. Your gospel is so simple. It is hard to believe that if our righteousness is so bad and you are so holy that the thing you would give to us is a pardon. But that's what you've done. For by grace, your, your mercy, for by grace, your mercy, you've saved us. It is your gift. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning there are some dead hearts in this building this morning, I pray that you will quicken those hearts to new life, that the word that was preached this morning would reach their hearts and give them new life in Christ Jesus, and that they might come and receive salvation. I ask today, if you have not given your life to Christ, those who are here this morning, dedicate your life today in prayer, that you will now give your life, give your heart to the gospel that Jesus Christ, in what he has done, has pardoned your sins. Lord Jesus, be with us now. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.